Welcome to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success, hosted by John Biggs. Every week, we talk to an amazing person about a time they failed and what they learned. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Welcome back to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success. Today's uh, success is Joseph Panetta. Uh, I've known him for a long time. Uh, Joseph, you asked to be identified, to self-identify, so you're, I'm going to let you do that. So welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Um, by the way, I self-identify as a tropical storm. Just the fact that I'm out there <laughs> makes people nervous and nobody wants to clean up after me. Um, or sometimes I self-identify as like a... A natural disaster, and my pronouns are try me. Okay. <laughs> but it's that's just, just a... me. I am Joseph Panetta, and for those of you who don't know, I am a long-tenured friend of John Biggs. And one thing you may not know about this gentleman is that his uh, sense of humor is um, like the name of his company, Big and Wide. Mm-hmm. His humor is infectious and hilarious, and I've had the joy of knowing him, traveling with him, and laughing with him for quite some time. I want, I think um, I once called I wanna... you cultish. I once called you cultish in a, in a, in a, in a watch publication, which was my favorite use of the yeah, word cultish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was C-O-L-T-I-S-H, not C-U-L-T. No, no, no. Cultish, like a little horse. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and yeah, that could sort of um, define me in a lot of ways, yeah. uh, but I digress. <laughs> so I run a company called Left of Center Consulting, where sort of unconventional brand strategy is my hallmark. And if uh, you know me like John does, then you know that unconventional is pretty much how I walk through life. Um, I act as a fractional CMO for companies who are in between leaders in that role or never had anybody in that function. And um, John, when we met, I held that role for the Swatch Group, the world's largest watch company. And um, this is a story of a of me going out on my own, creating my own business, using all of the wonderful tips, tools, and tricks that I know, and then literally an epic flipping failure. Mm -hmm. So back in 2017, I was coming off of my role um, ushering the wildly famous UK and Australian self-tanner brand Skinny Tan into the US market. And uh, its founder wanted to do something together. And Louise, who created the product, um, was a great friend and she was a great ally. And it was the late December and she and I were on a Skype together and she'd had a few too many glasses of wine. And she's like, let's let's do something together. And I'd had this idea that was based on an item from my mother's wardrobe. Now, mind you, I was I was born in Panama, which, you know, I was an Air Force brat. And um, my mom had this uh, poncho, which is typically very popular in kind of like Central America and South America. But this poncho was really interesting because my mom changed it, as opposed to being something you pull over your head because when you've backcombed your hair into a giant beehive in the 60s mm-hmm. and you put all of your makeup on, the last thing you want to do is pull something over your head, right? Because my mother was a Southern belle after all. So she had a seam cut up the front of the poncho and then these beautifully covered buttons created with these double buttonholes so that it's sort of stretched across the opening. And then she put those same buttons in the sleeve so that it actually had sleeves as opposed to just these like little arm areas. And it turned this rather mundane garment into something that was much more interesting. Now, many, many years ago, I had wanted to recreate this silhouette in a kind of pashmina or light silk fabric 
um, as a sort of light summer poncho. And my wife at the time made such fun of me and derided this notion and just kind of was like, are you crazy? No one's going to buy that. Twelve months later, every girl on the Upper West Side was wearing the summer poncho. <laughs> so, like, missed the opportunity, missed the market, but never forgot the idea. Fast forward to 2017, I'm talking to Louise, and I rekindled this idea. And so I, I talked with friends who are in the garment business um, to learn a little bit about what it would take to do this. I attended a fabric show in Paris called Premier Vision. And I looked at different fabrics, at different buttons, I tried to find different people to make it in other parts of the world, etc. Finally, I come to a local manufacturer in downtown LA where I had moved. And I, I bought remnant fabric that would be perfect for this. And I bought five or six different patterns of remnant fabric and got a, got a pattern made. And I, I, you know, all of this was predicated on a memory of my mom's super glam mm -hmm. pacho, which I had actually gifted to what not to wear Stacy London, who was a very dear friend of mine. And I gave it to her way back in the day when I was originally thinking about it. And she was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So as far as I know, she still has it. Go Stacy. Um, but based on my memory, I had this like pattern made, and we, we buy a whole bunch of fabric, and I find this manufacturer, and we have them made at an extortionate per unit cost. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like, crazy. Now, it was what I could afford at the time. It was the best thing I could find. It was going to be quick. Now, now we're in January, February, right? And the thing about this is I wanted to be able to make the summer season because this was going to be, you know, something that you wear over your swimsuit or something that you wear to the beach or on vacation. So I really wanted it to be ready for that kind of May, June time frame. So it's not like a thick um, wool poncho, like one of those like kid ones that the kids wear after they visited Peru once or whatever. So think about that, but made in a super light, okay. elegant fabric that, that is basically uh, the wind can blow through, but you can't see through it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I put like all of my 30 plus years of marketing to women knowledge into the creation of this and thought through every single element in, in ways I didn't even know I could. Wrote a business plan, developed downstream products so that I had, you know, next generation ponchos for different seasons mm -hmm. of the year. Um, I created compelling stories that were authentic because I'm a Southerner, so storytelling is in my blood. All of this stuff, I did, I did every single thing I recommend to my clients to do or to action or activate, except for one very important thing. So, I make these items, I get them, and I sink tens of thousands of dollars into this venture. I bring my gorgeous twin nieces from Mississippi to California, they were professional models, put them on a beach, and did a whole photo shoot for a day and a half with these things, and the, the ensuing photos were fantastic. We made little videos, I had all the content I needed, everything was frankly verging on awesome. The website, the logo, the product, the imagery, the design, all of it except product market fit mm -hmm. those three words are like a gigantic <laughs> torpedo in the boat of my idea right um i never did any competitive analysis whoops i never went to the shops to see what was on offer that was similar to the product i was offering and what price and what was selling. I consulted with people who had been in the swimwear industry for a long time. They thought the idea was cute, it was novel. I really wanted to make it super upscale and like not cheap. Um, and at 20 to $25 for manufacturing, it couldn't be cheap, right? Like that was already expensive. What I, I, I baked into this thing 
everything that I thought I understood about marketing to women, right? So, and all of that may have well been right, but ultimately you can make all the right decisions and end up with a bad outcome just mm -hmm. because of one misstep. And that's what happened here. It's like the misstep that slipped on a banana peel that was already on a spot of oil that was already on a plate of glass that was already mm -hmm. on a sheet of ice, right? That's kind of what it was like. The idea that I went from concept to finished product in a matter of about, let's call it 75 days, rather astonished my friends who were in the fashion trade. Like a, a dear friend of mine worked at Dolce Gabbana's. He was the president there and he'd been at Chloe before that. And he was like, you went from concept to product in less than 90 days? Nobody can do that. I was like, well, nobody told me I couldn't. So in that yeah. instance, naive, they paid off. But in retrospect, I probably should have taken a little bit more time to really examine the market that I was selling to, the products that were available. One thing I didn't do, I never looked at Amazon. Mm. That was a fatal flaw for one very important reason. <laughs> Amazon can tell you what sells and what doesn't, what price points work and what don't. And if you pay attention to the negative reviews, you can design a product that goes directly into those negative reviews right and kind of answers all of the issues that consumers themselves mm -hmm. raise and so now you have a really good you know marketing point around the time of our launch facebook had very famously now facebook was our primary marketing mechanism when i was working with skinny tan i sold 1.7 million dollars of a self-tanner that nobody knew inside of seven months doing digital marketing on facebook up to that point, I thought I was a dinosaur. I thought nobody would ever hire me because I didn't know the first thing about posting on social or digital mm -hmm. marketing. I understood strategy and marketing strategy, but I didn't know the ins and outs of Facebook and Instagram, etc. Working with Louise, I went from being a digital immigrant to a practical digital native, right? So I, I learned that very well. What I didn't learn for was that Facebook would change their algorithm. To such an extent, now in 2017, 2018, a lot of people know about this, Facebook changed its algorithm to where it practically punished small advertisers like us, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, it, and this is the time when lookalike lists were now not looking so much alike and not, not delivering. Um, it was the beginning of that kind of downside. And you could, you could spend like, how much was it that you were spending on ads in that case? It was like 10,000, 100,000, just to get that like million, million sales. Oh, well, first of all, when, when, for, for Skinny Tan, we yeah, were spending... Yeah, let's, let's do that. So for, in seven months, we probably spent uh, $250,000, $300,000. Okay. So it's a, so it's we a little spending, bit of money, we're but... We're spending between twenty and 30000 up to $40,000 a month. Mm -hmm. um, but we were also a reusable product. So once someone got the product and they used it three or four times, they had to buy another. They had to re-up. So like mm -hmm. anything, the margins were great. Um, the, the product when it's usable, when you sell a garment, why do people need to come back and rebuy? Yep. Right. So that's a, it's kind of a, almost a one and done scenario. Um, so when I tell you that we failed out of the gate and then we just kept failing, okay. <laughs> and it was, it was ego destructive. And I, I tried for months to get it going. I swapped retail channels. I dropped prices. I even tried selling it on Amazon against nine ninety nine. Mm. I mean, $9.99, you know, the things that look like a doily and felt like one. But on Amazon, if you're shopping there, that's probably your tolerance level. You don't want a $100 beach poncho, right? Yeah, exactly. You probably pay more for that than you did your bikini. 
and I, I gave a lot away. I probably sold somewhere, after having made thousands of them, I probably sold 500 or 600 total all-in over the entire time, maybe. And mm -hmm. these were one-offs to individuals. I never sold them to a retail or e-tail establishment. Um, I made every mistake that I advise my, custom, my, my clients not to make. And, I mean, I, I lacking the product market fit, if I'd had that right, it might have changed the outcome entirely. Um, but I will tell you, I was caught up in the moment. You know, I was really swept up in the speed to market idea, or what I call the speed to market ideal. And Plato said, we can never achieve the ideal because we live in the real. Mm -hmm. Boy, did that hit me between the eyes. <laughs> um, but I, I saw this venture through to its very bitter end when I found a jobber who could sell it to somebody who would basically get rid of it. And then they finally received all the product and then tried to negotiate me down from the pennies on the dollar that they were spending on it anyway. Mm. I think at the end of the day, I got rid of uh, about a thousand units of the garment, different you know style iterations or whatever. I think I got $1,200 for it all in. Okay. And it represented about $20,000 worth of investment right there. So, you know, from that failure came a lot of scars. Those scars were like, you know, the lessons that are scratched on you and seared into your memory. But I will tell you that they now inform my approach to my clients. And when I can speak with authenticity about having made this mistake and what it cost me financially, what it cost me, you know, relationship-wise, and what it cost me in my own ego and soul, right? It mm -hmm. was a real learning moment. Maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am kind of thing. And um, I will tell you that I firmly believe you learn more from failure than you do from success. But damn, I wanted that to be successful. So we got a, we got a couple questions. So let's say, so I think, I think, and I, I think you and I are similar in the, in the ways that we do do things. I think we get excited about something and we want to, we wanted to pull together. I think, I think in this very specific case, you did that. Like I, I recently got excited about an idea and I basically coded it over the course of a month and now it's out in the world. And I basically got four signups. What's, what's the best way to stop a impulsive people like us from making horrible mistakes and B, what are some of the pre, what's some of the pre-planning that we should do to prevent that kind of thing? I don't know that you can stop super excitable people from being super excitable. I think it's in mm -hmm. their DNA. Um, I think that for, for people like us, and, and by the way, Einstein once said, God bless the heretic, for it is on him or her that all progress is made. Mm -hmm. Right? So it, it is for people like us who move forward and fail that other people can succeed. Mm -hmm. that, that's literally what I, what I believe to be true. So when you ask that question, that's the first thing that ran through my mind. Let's not stop ourselves from making those mistakes because it will push somebody else forward and even ourselves. I do believe that there is a moment when we get caught up that we need to ask ourselves the question, am I getting caught up in this? Mm -hmm. It's a, a pause. It's a moment of self-reflection and for those of us who believe that we are abundantly self-aware, there are always moments like this that help us realize, well, maybe I'm not as self-aware as I think I am. Mm -hmm. And that's where you need to have friends. And listen, for those of you who don't know it or believe it, support doesn't always look the way you think it should. 
It doesn't mean everybody's on the sideline cheering for you. Your real friends are the ones who pull you aside and be like, have you thought about this? Have you really looked into this? <laughs> you know, and my, my takeaway from this entire um, process was effectively have a plan B and have a plan C. Mm-hmm. Because plan A may not happen. And plan C might not even happen. What? Well, how in do my you... case, I didn't. Plan Z didn't happen. Yeah, plan. plan... <laughs> how do you? How do you convince folks? One of the one of the things that kind of happens, I think, in 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 many cases, you come up to a person and you say, "Look, dude, I've seen this happen. I've seen this project before. I've seen this happen before. It never works. That's like that old the the." Rocky the squirrel and uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle and it's uh yeah it's that that trick never works right and if you've been around long enough you know that that trick never works for whatever reason and and maybe it's the permutation of the trick somebody's trying to play maybe those maybe your Dolce and Gabbana friend could basically say oh I see what the permutation is here watch out this is how you're going to break but how do you how do you break through that 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 sense that your client or your friend or whoever is going to do it anyway. How do you convince them to, to slow down? It's a good question. I don't know that you can. I just mm-hmm. know that you should try. Okay. Right? Um, because there's a former boss of mine used to say, a person will go a hell of a lot further with their bad idea than they will with your good one. Yep. Right? Because it's that fire and that motivation to succeed. And there's always that unbridled optimism that the entrepreneur almost categorically must have. Mm -hmm. That they are going to succeed in the face of failure. And even their own failure, by the way. And and I'm not, mind you, I'm not blaming anybody else Mm -hmm. for the failure of this brand and this product than myself. Like, this wasn't anybody else's fault but mine. And, And I own that which also means that I learn from that and it means that I can speak from it authentically. So the only thing I can do for my clients is offer them the wisdom from experience. I've been where you are. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have been in exactly this moment. Let me tell you how it ended up for me. One of two things will happen. They will either listen or they won't. Okay. And there are consequences on either side of that decision. I mean, I think if, if you really think about what, you're, what you said, what you described, it sounds like a blast, honestly. Like to build something that that meant something to you that is meaningful that you thought may or may not work, uh, and you spent not that much money. I mean, twenty k for for the average human being is that's a that's a, that's a couple months' salary, but twenty k in an entrepreneurial sense that's like a drop in the bucket. And you got to have you got to it sounds like you had fun doing it. Presumably, you got to you got to build a brand from soup to nuts. I guess. I was enthralled by mm-hmm. it, actually. I, I don't think I've ever felt quite that energized for quite that sustained a period of time. Um, it was just fantastic. Um, it was intoxicating mm-hmm. to, a lot, to a large degree. But in that intoxication, I also forgot what I do and forgot to treat myself as a client and forgot to ask myself some really tough questions. Mm-hmm. And this unbridled belief that I had it all figured out is not just a fallacy, but also somewhat dangerous. Danger. Well, uh, this, I mean, this is, this wasn't, you weren't, you weren't like, you weren't making a mammogram machine. You were making a beautiful picture. <laughs> <You were making laughs> yeah. In, in the bigger picture. It, it, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'm not, 
uh, it's not Tesla or, you know, mammogram machines, but it, it, in my own way, it was a little bit, uh, it was destructive to my bank account. That $20,000, uh, by the way, was just the remaining inventory. That wasn't, okay. the, that, ah, wasn't okay. inventory. that wasn't the initial spend. No, it was right, quite right, right. Uh, Yeah, it was still an ouch, no matter how you slice it. All right. I, I'm, I, I don't, I don't want to say you got away, you got away easy, but I don't think you did by any stretch of the imagination, but it sounds, it sounds like a thing. sounds like a fun time. Would, would you do it again? If you had that, if you under had that very, idea. Very, very different, under very, very different scenarios, would I do it again? And I would mm -hmm. really ask myself the hard questions. I would vet a lot of this by somebody who isn't me, because the, the thing about the tarot card reader is that she can read everyone's fortune, but her own. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need somebody else to look at the cards. Well, I like I like the idea of you you calling yourself your own client. You're basically you should have been watching out for yourself, but you didn't watch out yourself because it because the whole thing was the whole thing was so exciting and so heady that 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 expenditure seemed like a drop in the bucket for the future. I mean, not not future wealth, but I mean just the future future satisfaction of making a product that everybody wants. Correct. The future success, whether or not it was going to be like, you mm -hmm. know, wealth creation at a minimum, I wanted to be able to, you know, meet my, um, meet my expenses, mm -hmm. you know, meaning the, the, the product development, the photo shoot, the, um, the money you sink into all the marketing. That's not cheap. Was there an emotional toll associated with this? Did you come out of this sadder? Did you come out of this upset? <sighs> I came out of this a little ego wounded and bruised, no doubt mm -hmm. about it. A bit depressed, actually. Um, and I think I was depressed because that was my main focus for mm -hmm. a sustained period of time. And coming out of it, I didn't have clients and revenue and all of that to kind of make up for it or where I could shift my focus and my attention. So I ended up sort of uh, looking down into my coffee and marinating over the loss. Mm -hmm. So that can, that can lead you down a, a very... Um, not fun path but what i chose to do was to use it as fuel as opposed mm -hmm. to burning myself up i could use it as fuel to forge forward and that's really what i kind of did i like it all right what's what's the what's the best advice for somebody who's got something burning behind their eyes vet it mm-hmm treat yourself as your own client. Like if you don't, if you don't have a marketing and brand development background, talk to people who do talk to, you know, business accelerators and incubators and, and ask them what their top three, if, if ask them for their top three watch outs first, then ask them for their top three hacks second. Mm -hmm. Like that to me would be the, the two smartest questions you could ask anybody who's done it, but definitely rely on the wisdom of others. Cause if you're just going with your own wisdom <laughs> you're missing large <laughs> elements of experiential success and failure. Cause as I said, I learned more from that failure than I ever did from any amount of success. You know, I, um, I did an, an event at, um, MJ BizCon, the big marijuana conference. Um, it's a cannabis conference in Las Vegas a couple years ago. And that, <laughs> that event, I wrote about it on LinkedIn. Actually, it was called using sex to sell drugs. Mm-hmm. I was convinced up until we were about 20 minutes into that event that it was a titanic disaster, mm -hmm. that it was going to be a, a significant spend for a very low return, and this thing was going to go down in flames. I literally thought that's what was 
happening. I'm, I'm standing there in the room thinking, right, this is what failure looks like. I am going to literally walk through abject failure right now. I explain in the article, and I, I, can't, I can't exactly put my finger on it, but something happened about 20 to 30 minutes into that event that turned it from the singularly worst event of my career to potentially one of the best I've ever thrown in my life. Now, how do you do a 180 degree turn? Like mm -hmm. literally, how do, you, how do you manage to pull that off? Because it's like moving the Queen Mary in New York Harbor. Like this is not an easy thing to do. And it takes, you know, a whole lot of forces working with a bunch of luck behind you to make it happen. And in my instance, it was a bunch of scantily clad Cirque du Soleil performers performing Kama Sutra positions in different rooms of the event. And suddenly, everything turned. And all 400 people we invited showed up and stayed. <laughs> Now, did, did you plan this or did they just show up? I don't, I don't know. Cause in, in, in your life, it seems like, uh, it seems like circus lay performers just show up and do Kama Sutra positions. So basically that just means it's Tuesday. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. This is LA. Like, like, Glitter and unicorns just is like Tuesday. Right. Yeah. Um, but the strategy behind it is really where the, where it shines. Like the, the set dressing is great, but this was Mar marijuana Bizcon, MJ Bizcon you're you're talking to people who are long in the tooth and understand what thc is mm -hmm. so how are you going to introduce them to a new molecule called thco mm -hmm. how are you going to educate people who think they know everything there is to know about thc about a whole new sister to thc called thco so it was like you focus on the o so the entire premise of this thing was the big o okay and then the the invitations and everything we're in las vegas the home of burlesque yeah right the, there were you know women with their boobs out and feathers on their hair for decades, right? So, <laughs> you know, Dita Von Teese, like all of this stuff is Las Vegas central and specific. So, the, you know, there's a lot, we, a lot of room and latitude to be in Vegas to get away with something like this. But the concept here was, was well honed and a really great idea. The problem was that our venue, our, our party location, got tossed. The Airbnb people mm. just decided that they would rent it to somebody else at a higher price and mm -hmm. they kicked us out two weeks before. Everybody who was having an event had it on the first night. Their invitations had been out for more than a month. Everybody had their first night on the calendar already booked. Our invitations go out focused around what we focused it on, the big O. And um, we had, we shut off the RSVP list at 400 and we were like, okay, it's the first night. People are going to do a drive-by. They're going to come in, have a cocktail, see what it's all about and leave because that's what people do on the first night. Mm -hmm. And it's 400, you expect about 30, 40% attrition off sure, of that. Sure. So you're gonna get roughly 250 people, maybe over the course of the four hours. So you're talking about maybe like 50 people an hour, like no big deal in a giant suite at the Encore. All 400 people came and nobody left. The police came to shut us down three times if we didn't get <laughs> out of the suite. There were people lined up in the hallway to get in, but the <laughs> most obstructive thing is that they were lined up downstairs at the lobby desk trying to get into the elevator oh my God. to come up. But they wouldn't let them because we had too many people in the room. So it, it, it danced this fine line between success and failure. But it's like the best party that the police shut down. Like, yeah. And the interesting thing about that was that four months later, someone told me that a friend of theirs was telling them about this off-the-hook party they attended at MJ BizCon in 
in October in uh, in in Vegas, and they started to recount the party, and I'm like, yeah, that that was my yeah, event. Cheers. Four months later, they're still talking about it. I was like, well, if not to mention we sold out of the entire year's worth of inventory that night, but the fact that four months after the event, people are still talking about it, and MJ BizCon has some pretty big fucking events, like some pretty major things. So the fact that we stood out like that was uh, was amazing, considering that the first. You know, the first day and a half to thirty minutes into the party, I thought it was an epic disaster. So, so we had we had we had two tales tales of failure, and 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 per per usual with Joseph Panetta, uh, the the second tale was far far. It, it was the obvious conclusion, whereas your first tale was kind of like the unobvious one. And I'm and I'm and I'm I'm glad you shared the unobvious one first because I know that your uh, your track record for success as a as a cool dude is uh, is pretty high up there. Well, you, I. I... I, I am trying to live up to your standard and one of these days I'll <laughs> Joseph, thank you for joining us. This has been this has been Keep Going. We will see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Keep Going. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Soon my heart goes running.